I'm Ethan Majok. Welcome to The Point from WFT in Gainesville, Florida. News broke this week from the United States Supreme Court that the judges are going to let Florida's death penalty system stand as it is and not take up an appeal from Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi. That denial comes a year after the nation's highest court basically halted executions in the state. New legislation was passed, and now the governor could again begin to sign death warrants. Our reporter Rebecca Marr has been corresponding with one death row inmate who had been at the center of the state's death penalty appeals when executions were halted last year. His name is Michael Lambrix, and this week she brings you the story of his many years in the Florida State Prison. Afterward, my colleague Ryan Vasquez has a few questions for Becky. In my world, death is no stranger. Death is the only absolute reality in life, and everything else is just a play- game we played to get there. Most of us are never... For- Can I start over, please? Yes, I'm sorry. You, did you notice my mistake there? That's Michael Lambrix reading an excerpt from the podcast script, Regrets of the Dying, Mike. I not only visited Lambrix to ask questions that weren't answered in the series of letters that we wrote to each other, but because a podcaster from the United Kingdom had sought me out. So we set aside 30 minutes of the visit for Lambrix to read about his life in prison and the reason why he's there. He says it doesn't bother him to tell his story over and over. Does the story, is it just a story? Like, is it Not to me like, it's not, because I live it every day. It's kind of like watching a movie or reading a book. No, it's not. No? No. Why? It's like being trapped in the movie. And it's a horror show. Lambrix, 57 years old, has spent the majority of his life behind bars. He is currently on a temporary stay of execution. I asked him how it feels to go from facing death to turning around and spending more time in a cell. I've already faced imminent execution three times. Twice in 1988 and once just this past year. So do you ever think it's actually going to happen or you're just going to keep moving back and forth? Actually, you do reach that point. Uh, you, you do reach, in 1988, I came within hours. This time I only came within a week. And so, yes, you do relive, you, you do reach that point where you confront your own mortality, where you have to accept that, you know is what, this is it. It is scary and it's, it's overwhelming. Lambrix has been fighting for his case ever since he was sentenced. He admits to killing Clarence Moore, but says it was in self-defense as Moore was responsible for attacking and killing Alicia Bryant. As of last year, Lambrix has filed 10 petitions, 5 appeals, 5 motions, and 1 clemency hearing. They were all denied. He's also filed appeals with the federal and state Supreme Court, but they were also denied. Now, he has other appeals that he's trying to file, but can't until the Florida Supreme Court makes a decision on his rehearing. Lambrix is already prepared for that appeal to also be denied. Uh, we have a comprehensive actual innocence appeal that we will file the day after they deny rehearing, which will present solid scientific evidence substantiating my innocence. Lambrix is trying to file an appeal that will make the courts look at the DNA evidence of the crime scene. They have that evidence, but they refuse to test it. All they have to do is test the clothing that Alicia Bryant wore at night for touch DNA, skin cells basically, that are embedded in the fibers of the clothing. However, he says the U.S. Supreme Court has made it clear that innocence is not an issue. We're going to challenge that under the Eighth Amendment, arguing that they have to revisit that ruling, that Herrera versus Collins ruling from 1993, 
because the Eighth Amendment prescription against cruel and unusual punishment requires them to address innocence before they kill an innocent person if the evidence can show it. So now, Lambrix just continues to do what he's been doing. You're just waiting. We're in limbo. Rebecca Marr, WUFT News. I'm Ryan Vasquez. I'm radio news manager here at the College of Journalism at the University of Florida. I'm joined by our reporter, Rebecca Marr. And Rebecca, let me ask you, when did you start this pen pal relationship with Michael Lambrix? I started January of 2016. So it's been over a year so far. And we've written five letters together. um, And we've talked to each other on and off. And recently, we've been talking to each other again. And what started this correspondence? Actually, it happened January 12th when the Supreme Court struck down Florida's death penalty policy. So they said you must have the jury weigh in on the decision whether to execute someone. In Florida, we were not doing that. The jury would give the decision to the judge, but the judge would make the ultimate decision. When that happened, I think I went to a news manager and I questioned saying, does that mean all the other um, executions scheduled, will they be revisited? And they said, oh, they wouldn't do that. And just in curiosity, I looked up the first case to be executed, which would be that coming February, and I just started writing letters and asking. And he started to appeal his case based on that motion. And to give people a better sense of Michael Lambrix, he's someone who is somewhat of a death row celebrity, if you will. Yes, he has a following in the UK, and several people have written him letters. He told me that he has 10 regular correspondents But I know that he has a blog out, he has a few books, he's been engaged to one of his letter writers. So he does have a following. As a member of the media, he's kind of expressed to you in your conversations that he's not always fond of all members of the media. So you kind of held a special position in this correspondence as you're one of the few to actually get to interview him in person as you just recently did. Right. So after talking to him for over a year, I finally met him yesterday and We talked about how he recommended my name to someone and said, I want Rebecca Marr to interview me after we haven't talked for months. And I brought that up and he said, because I stood out to him. I asked questions, I called him out. Because most of our letters, he just reiterated information I can find online. And I even said that, I said, I wouldn't bother asking you this if I already knew this. So he said I was bold and I stood out from other journalists and I stuck to facts. So it's, it's not all journalists who catch the attention of people who are on death row. So it's a unique relationship that you've had with this, this man it over is. the course of a year and, year and a half. What are some of the quirkiness, little odd parts that you get when you have uh, correspondence with a death row inmate? Well, his personality has started to show. Like yesterday, we were talking and he would just like look at me and giggle. And he would just reference the letters next to me. Or he asked me about my graduation And we joked about his birthday. So little things like that where he actually, he talks to me as if he's known me for a while, which is a little strange explaining to my parents and friends what I'm doing. But it's also kind of cool how personal and trusting he is. And you've had the opportunity, obviously, to get his story. And his story is very different than how the courts see it. As far as your understanding is your interactions with him, either through your letters and in person, does he come across as a genuine individual and what he believes in? He comes across very genuine, which is a little scary because as a journalist, you want to be neutral. You can't be biased. But it's hard not to believe him when he tells you his story 
because he's so heartfelt. He takes these very long pauses as if he's just letting his whole soul out. And he doesn't get emotional because he even said he seems detached because it's been 33, 34 years. He spent his whole adult life in prison. And he maintains that he is innocent, that he killed one person. He does say he killed Clarence Moore in self-defense, but he did not kill Alicia Bryant. And even in our interview, he talked about if he had to relive that day, he wouldn't kill Clarence Moore. But he did it because he had no time to think. And it was just an impulse, protecting himself as well as Alicia. So, and he's reached out to Alicia Bryant's family, telling them that he's asking for forgiveness and he didn't do anything. Now, obviously, the courts don't see it that way. And he's been in, right. uh, he's been in jail for 33 years and as been, as we've heard in your story, up for death, if you will, a number of times. But what are some of the truly unique things that kind of stick out to a man who's on death row? What are some of the really personal things that he shared with you, like how he feels or what he misses about being outside? He has almost been executed three times. Twice in 1988, where one time he was hours away from execution and they literally turned him around. And once this past year, in 2016, when the Florida Supreme Court halted his execution, as well as several others. And when I asked him, he said that being in the state of limbo, he never knows if he's going to die or not. But what he misses the most is grass and outside and the lakes and just nature. He gets to go outside sometimes, but not really. He doesn't get to go to a park or see what we see. And he was just saying he misses the stars and just misses normal life. We talk about this case, and there are obviously three main components of this case that are very obvious, if you will. Uh, they are Michael Lambricks and the two folks who were killed that he has right. the murder convictions for. But there was another person involved in that night. Can you explain who she is and what Michael Lambricks shared about her with you? So this whole case, according to research um, and all the information you can find online, is based on a testimony witness who was Francis Smith. At the time, Francis Smith and Michael Lambricks had a relationship, and that's when they met Clarence Moore and Alicia Bryant in Glades County, Miami, Florida, in like 1983. And um, Francis did not see anything. All she heard was Michael come back to the trailer and tell her what happened. But Francis was the one that said Michael killed the people. He buried the bodies. And later on, they found out that she was having an affair with the state prosecutor of the case. Um, I talked to Michael Lambricks yesterday because we were talking about anger and how he controls it. And he said that he got over it a long time ago and he used to be very angry with her. And, but now he realizes that she's a victim as well. Like her whole life has been taken over by this case too. And she can't get away from it. So I asked if you could see her again, what would you do? And he said he would just give her a big hug and say he forgave her. Now, not everyone has been to a prison, let alone one that houses death row inmates. So it kind of explain some of the unique things that stuck out to you the first time you went. It was actually kind of terrifying. And I was a little nervous because you walk up and there's like gates every few feet. And there's no one there, no guards, and just a huge tower and they'll just look at you, no one says anything, and then a huge buzzer happens, and all the gates start opening. And there's signs that say, oh, fences are electric, and barbed wires. And you see prisoners in jumpsuits, 
Um, so it was a little alarming to me. And the one thing that I thought was weird that everyone was so friendly. Like the captain of the Death Watch, he went up to me. He's like, hi, ma'am, how are you? Are you ready for your interview? And I was like, sure, I'm ready for an interview. And once Michael Lambricks came in, they were just joking. They were like, hey, not our first time doing this. So it was like seeing a family member after being from, like, after staying in college for so long. It wasn't like, here's a prisoner who is questionably innocent or maybe guilty. It was just talking to friends. And it was a really weird environment because at first I was trying to be very somber and not show any emotion, but you couldn't help but smile because everyone was joking. So I forgot I was in a prison. It's very different, I guess, maybe from your preconceived notions, maybe a lot of people's preconceived notions about jails and prisons that we see on TV, right. Orange is the New Black, all these different That's other things that we have in, in our popular culture, Oz, etc. So it kind of switched on its head for you for perceptions of how not only prisoners interact in a prison, but how guards do as well, right? Well, there was a moment where um, I was saying, oh, we need to wrap up because I have five minutes left. And he was like, oh, don't worry, Captain will give you an extra 10. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the captain could hear as he was outside the room and he like made a face at Lambricks and Lambricks turned around and sticks his tongue out. And it was just like little kids interacting and which was so weird. So I even asked him, how is your relationship with the lieutenants and the captains? And he says, it's up and down. Some are very respectful. Some, the relationship's been rocky. So, but he said it's been better. And you learned an important lesson when you left the prison. Can you explain that one? I did. Apparently, the prisons are very strict, and you're not allowed to take pictures of the building. So once I left the barbed wires and the fences, and I was actually walking to my car, I just turned around to take a picture of the prison. And walking to my car, all these, like, two guards went up to me running. They're like, need to delete that right now. And they, I had to show them the pictures so that was a little confusing and startling because I took pictures of Lambricks. That's what I would be more concerned of. What's the, I guess, the big takeaway? Now that you actually met him in person and you've been corresponding with him over the course of a year through five letters, uh, what's your kind of personal take on the man? You know, there are, there's all kinds of death row inmates. Not all death row inmates are created equal. You know, there's someone who's on death row who killed one person. There are serial killers. There are all kinds of people who are unremorseful, deeply remorseful. What is your sense of the man, Michael Lambricks, as he kind of fits into the greater scheme of death row? Well, I learned that you can't compare death row inmates. That's not fair at all. And one reporter from Gainesville, Florida, he actually compared Lambricks to Ted Bundy. And um, Michael Lambricks, who is in prison and can't really confront these attacks, he addressed it in his blog, where he said, that's not fair because I'm on death row because I said I killed someone in self-defense. Ted Bundy killed several people and admitted to that. And so you can't compare those. And I think he believes that there's no justice for him right now. And he was telling me the difference between justice and vengeance and saying that the courts really don't care about innocence. They care about other issues, but if you're innocent, they really don't care. So it's hard because it seems like he didn't have a fair trial, and there's several holes in his case, um, especially since he's never had a, case, a trial for his innocence, and he's never had proper lawyers, and they never tested the DNA on certain things. So you question why are all these holes leading up to an execution? If you're going to execute someone, you should like 
know that they deserve execution if you're in that place. And of course, these are all things that Michael Lambrex has said on behalf yes. of his case. Now, in fairness to him as well, some of these things can be proven. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There are records of everything. There are motions. There's appeals all for the DNA testing, all for um, getting a proper lawyer. He's done it so many times. And actually, right now, he's waiting for the Florida Supreme Court to deny or approve um, a rehearing. And once they deny it, he's already ready. Um, he's going to file another motion for his innocence. So he's thinking like 10 steps ahead. So my final question for you, Rebecca, as you've kind of come to a culmination or at least a certain milestone in this ongoing relationship with Michael Lambrix, mm -hmm. do you intend on continuing to talk to him? Um, I'm not sure. I've kind of been conflicted about it because there, were t there was a time where I would talk to him um, almost every week and then I just stopped because I thought it was a little weird. People started judging me, family, friends. My roommates were like, stop writing him letters from our apartment. He knows where we live. And I would say, oh, he's harmless. And they would say, like, listen to you. How do you know he's harmless? And then once I started talking to him again and actually meeting him in person, you realize that he's, he's a human being. And we talked about how sometimes being on death row, your story is like a movie. You become a character until you actually meet that person. So... I think maybe I would continue talking to him if I could, but um, right now he's on stay of Death Watch. Once he gets moved to Death Watch, his um, visits, his letters, his phone calls, they're all a little restricted, and he would have a 30-day countdown till execution. My thanks to Ryan and to Becky for a report that took her to Rayford and inside the Florida State Prison. Our Find Out Florida series is taking a break this week, but here's a quick preview of next week's show. Michael McGuire asked us what the exact cost of maintaining the Rodman Dam in Putnam County is each year. What we're learning is that it's actually a lot less than people have always said. Join us next week as we report exactly what that cost is, as well as the arguments for and against keeping the dam. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.